0: This episode of the Art of Manly's podcast is brought to you by Undeniably Dairy. One in six kids in the U.S. faces hunger, and that number goes up during the summer months when kids don't have access to school meal programs. Undeniably Dairy and America's dairy farmers have been passionate about providing food for families for a long time, and this summer, they're building on dairy's commitment to nourishing communities by partnering with Feeding America to fight child hunger. You can go to giveagallon.com to donate to a food bank in your area, and stick around later in the show when we do our typical mid-roll ad break. We've got a short interview with New York Jet Kelvin Beecham about the creativity that 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 goes into running a dairy farm and more about giveagallon.com. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Whenever a financial or technological disaster takes place, people wonder if it could have possibly been averted. My guests today say that the answer is often yes, and that the lessons around why big disasters happen can teach us something about preventing catastrophes in our businesses and in our personal lives. Their names are Chris Clearfield and Andras Tilchek. They're the authors of Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail, and What We Can Do About It. We begin our discussion getting into how they got interested in exploring how everything from plane crashes to nuclear meltdowns to flash stock market crashes actually share common causes. We then discuss the difference between complicated and complex systems, why complex systems have weaknesses that make them vulnerable to failure, and how such complexity is on the rise in our modern technological era. Along the way, Chris and Andras provide examples of complex systems that have crashed and burned, from the Three Mile Island nuclear reactor meltdown to a Starbucks social media campaign gone awry. We enter a conversation digging into specific tactics engineers and organizations use to create stronger, more catastrophe-proof systems, and how regular folks can use these insights to help make their lives run a bit more smoothly. After the show's over, check out our show notes at aom.is slash meltdown. Chris and Andras, join me now by Skype. Chris Clearfield, Andras Tilchek. welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Thanks. So you two co-authored a book, Meltdown, What Plane Crashes, Oil Spills, and Dumb Business Decisions, can teach us about how to succeed at work and at home. And I was telling you all before we started, I I was actually, I read this book while I was on an airplane, reading about catastrophic plane crashes, which made me feel great. (laughs) I'm curious, how did you two start working together on this idea of exploring catastrophic failures and what they can teach us about how to be successful
1: in life? Well, I'll tell maybe kind of my half of how I came to this work. and then, Andres, you can maybe pick up with sort of how we came together with it. i was I studied physics and and biochemistry as an undergrad, so I was always kind of a science geek. but then i I got intercepted and ended up on working on Wall Street. and I ended up working there kind of during the heart of the two thousand and seven two thousand and eight financial crisis. And, you know, so all around me, the kind of the whole system of finance was struggling and collapsing. and I had this observation that, oh, you know, I, I think that, you know, bank X is going to do better than bank Y in this process. And and then I kind of st- st- took a step back and thought, well, that's really interesting. Like, I don't work at either of these places. Like, how could I possibly say something about the the, the ability of these firms to manage risk, you know, just as an outsider, just based on kind of a really bare understanding of their culture? And And so that made me just really interested in this question, sort of how organizations learn to manage failure and manage complexity. And and at the same time, I was actually learning to fly airplanes. I'm a pilot. I'm an instructor now. But at the time, I was just starting to learn. And I was kind of reading obsessively about why pilots crash planes, like why, you know, well-trained flight crews make mistakes that mean that they, they, you know, make bad decisions or, or they have these errors in judgment that cause them to, you know, to, despite their best efforts to, to kind of crash and do the wrong thing. And that, that to me was also the same kind of thing. It's like, you know, the culture of a team mattered and the culture of an airline or the kind of way people approach these, these, these challenging situations really mattered. And then the third piece of the puzzle that made me realize what a widespread issue this was was when BP's Deepwater Horizon oil rig exploded in the Gulf of Mexico, and you know just because I was interested, I started reading about that accident and, and realized that there was this kind of same set of sort of system and organizational factors at play in in that accident. It was a, a complex system with a lot of different aspects to it, a lot of different things that had to be done correctly. And there wasn't a great culture to support that. And so that made me realize what a widespread problem it was. And, and, but I was still thinking about it mostly from the systems angle. And then Andras and I came together at some point and, and started thinking kind of more more broadly about it together.
2: Yeah, and I came from a, a social science angle, and so I was more interested in the organizational aspects of this. But in some ways, we started to converge around this idea that, you know, if you look at these different failures, the financial crisis, deep water horizon, a plane crash... If you read enough of the of the literature and the accident reports on these, you start to see some of the same themes come up over and over again. And I, I thought that was that that was fascinating. That there is this sort of dark side to organizations, but it's not unique to each failure. There, there's some kind of fundamentals. And in some ways, we we started to see that over time as this very positive message, potentially, in that. While it implies that we are making the same dumb mistakes over and over again across different industries and, and in different life situations, if it's the same things that get us into trouble across these situations, it also means that if we figure out a solution in, in some fields, we can try to apply those in, in other fields and we can all learn from other people, from other industries. And and so that that was... It wasn't just gloom and doom. And I think that that really helped move this whole project forward.
0: Well, let's talk about, I think it's interesting you t- you guys highlight this, the study, the scientific study of catastrophe is relatively new. And it started with this guy named Charles Perrault. Is that how do you say his last name? Perrault? Yeah, Perrault. Perrault. Um, Andres, I think this would be your in your wheelhouse since this, he was a, a social psychologist. What was his contribution what did what was his insight about catastrophic failures
2: and like why they occur on an organizational level? Yeah, so Charles Perot or Chick Perot, as people more affectionately know him, he's he's actually a sociologist, fascinating character. He's in his early nineties now. He got into this whole field back in the in the late seventies, in the wake of the the Three Mile Island partial meltdown and. You know his whole entry into this field was just just so interesting to to chris and me when we were studying it he he really you know for for an outsider he was studying very obscure organizational sociological topics and then he ends up looking at three mile island from this very organizational sociological social scientific perspective rather than the standard kind of hardcore engineering perspective and and in that process he develops this big insight that you know one of the the most fascinating things about three mile island is that you know it's it's this big meltdown and yet the the causes of it are just so trivial or are you know it's really a combination of a bunch of small things kind of like a plumbing error combined with some human oversight or, or problems with kind of human attention and sort of nothing out of the ordinary. It's not like a big earthquake or a terrorist attack. And those those little things instead just combine and bring down this whole system. And that really inspired Perot at the time to kind of figure out what are the systems where we would see these types of failures, these types of meltdowns. And, and that's when he develops this interesting typology of systems which really has two parts. One is complexity. The other is tight coupling. But complexity just means that the system has a lot of elaborately connected parts. So it's 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 like a, an intricate web, less like a linear assembly line type of process, and it's not a very visible system. You can just you know you can just send a guy to the nuclear core and tell them, hey, take a look look at what's going on in there and come back, report back to me. You have to instead rely on indirect indicators. And the other part of the of this typology that he comes up with is, is what he calls tight coupling, which really just means the lack of slack in a system, that the system is unforgiving. It doesn't really have a lot of margin for error. And he says that when, when a system has both of those components, then it's especially ripe for these types of big surprising meltdowns that come from, not from a big external shock, but from little things coming together inside the system in in surprising ways. And and he says that's because complexity tends to confuse us. It tends to produce symptoms in a system that are hard to understand, hard to diagnose. As they are happening. And if the system also doesn't have a lot of slack in it, if it's tightly coupled, if it's unforgiving, then then it's just going to run away with it. It's just gonna run away with us. We we'll get confused, but it will be and we'll be surprised, and it's going to be a particularly nasty kind of surprise. You can't easily control it. And in some ways, you know, what what we do in this book is, is that we build on pearls inside that came from this you know, one particular accident at Three Mile Island. And we try to extend and apply that insight to to modern systems, basically 40 years later. And, and we still see a lot of resonance of, of that very simple yet yet deeply insightful framework. Well,
0: let's take this idea of complexity because you guys highlight in the book that something can be complicated, but not complex. What's the difference between the, the, two, the two things?
1: I, you know, I think that the... the, the complexity is is a very specific way of thinking about the amount of connectedness in the system the amount of kind of the way that the parts come together so a complicated system might be a system that has lots of different pieces or, or has lots of moving parts like the kind of hardware in our phone but most of those things, they they interact in very stable and and predictable ways. Whereas a complex system, it, it has these interactions that are sort of important either by design or important kind of by accident. You know, the the Three Mile Island example is is just one example of this. But where you have these kind of parts of the system that end up being like physically or or kind of informationally close to each other. That that's not intended by the designers. Delta, for example, had a fire in a data center, which brought down their whole fleet of planes. I don't mean made crash, but I mean, you know, grounded their whole fleet of planes. They couldn't dispatch new flights. And so you have this really unintentional connection between these different parts of the system that come from the way it's built, that come from the, the complexity. So I think complexity refers to that, the, the kind of the the... Connections being more important than the components themselves. Okay. So, like a complicated system, or yeah, a complicated system would be like the Rube Goldberg machine, right? Yes.
0: Where there's like different little parts, but it all works in a linear fashion. And if one part's messed up, like you can figure out, you can replace that part and it'll keep going. Like you can keep things moving. With a complex system, it would be something like, there's like a network effect, right? Where parts that you don't think are connected linearly start interacting and it affects the whole system.
1: Exactly. That's a great way to put it. Okay. That's, you, that's should, how- you should come with us on other podcasts so you can, <laughs> you can- <laughs> help us with that.
0: <laughs> All right. So that's complexity. Um, and so the other issue, the other part of the what causes catastrophic meltdowns is the 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 tight tightly coupled. So what would be an example of
2: a tightly coupled system, right? Where there's very little slack. I think one neat way to think about it is is take one system and sort of think about when it is more or less tightly coupled. So take a take an airplane and you're at the airport, you're just leaving the gate. It's a relatively loosely coupled system at that point in the sense that there's a lot of slack in it. There's a lot of buffer. There's a lot of time to address problems and and figure out what's going on if if something bad or concerning happens, right? So say you are the pilot, you notice something going on, you can go back to the gate, you can bring in other people, you can have a repair crew, you can go out, have a cup of coffee, think about what's happening. Once you are in the air, it's it's a lot more tightly coupled. And once you are, say, over the Atlantic, very far from any other alternative option, such as another airport where you could land, it's, it's extremely tightly coupled. There is no time to, to think, there's no time to get new parts, there's no other resources you can lean on, and you can just say, hey, I'm, I'm going to, this is a very complex, confusing situation, I'm going to step outside, have my coffee, come back after I had some fresh air, <clears throat> and then solve it. Things just happen fast in real time, and you just have to work with what you, what you got.
0: And, and got another example I think you give in the book, sort of like just a run-of-the-mill tightly coupled system is like, if you're cooking a meal, right. And you have to time things just right so that the meal is all done at the same time. And if you miss one thing up, then like, you're going to be 20, 30 minutes late with, you know, serving your, your meal. Right.
1: Yeah. That's a, that's a great, that's a great one. And the other example that I like to think about that, you know, just crops up in, in, in my personal life when I have to travel for work is you know, what does my flight look like? Like, do I have a direct flight from you know Seattle to San Francisco? That's pretty simple. And you know there might be problems in the network. But by and large, if I show up for that flight on time, I'm going to get on the plane. It's going to fly to san francisco and and I'm going to be fine. But if I'm going to, you know, like if I'm going to to someplace on the east coast from from Seattle where I live, then, do I have to change planes in Chicago? Well, that adds a bit of complexity. Now there's kind of more parts of my trip where things can go wrong. And, you know, if I have 2 hours to change planes, well, that's kind of a that's sort of a buffer. That's relatively loosely coupled. If I have 4 hours, it's super loosely coupled. But if I have 45 minutes, suddenly I'm in a really tightly coupled system where any delay caused by complexity is likely to be very disruptive to my whole trip, be very disruptive to my whole system.
0: How has Digital technology and the internet added more complexity and more coupling to our systems.
1: There's so many good examples of this, and and I think this is one of the fascinating things for us about working on this book. That when we started, we really expected to be working on, you know, the big like writing about big disasters, writing about Deepwater Horizon and 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 you know Three Mile Island, and we we definitely write about those things. But what struck us was how many more systems have moved into into Perot's danger zone that are complex and tightly coupled. And there's so many examples, but you know, one of the ones that I love is our cars these days. So I have a 2016 Subaru Outback. This is not, I mean it's a it's a lovely car, but it's not a fancy car. And yet it it has the ability to look up stock prices on the infotainment system in the dashboard. And so you know, suddenly you've taken this, this piece of technology that used to be relatively simple and relatively standalone. And now many, many parts of the car are controlled by computers themselves. And, and that has very good reasons. That's to, you know, add features and and increase the efficiency of how the engine works and, and all of this good stuff. But now suddenly manufacturers are connecting these cars to the internet and they are part of this global system and there's this fascinating story in the book that was covered originally by a wired reporter called andy greenberg and it is about these hackers that figure out that they can through the cellular network hack into and remotely control jeep cherokees and so they they've done all this research and fortunately the guys who did that were you know white hat hackers they were hackers kind of whose role was to find these security flaws and help manufacturers fix them but that didn't necessarily have to be the case. So you suddenly have this example of complexity and, and tight coupling coming because manufacturers are now connecting cars to the internet. I mean, Teslas can be remotely updated overnight while it's in your garage. And you know, that adds great capabilities, but it also adds this real ability for something to go wrong either by accident or or nefariously
0: Uh, but you also give other examples of the internet creating more complexity in sort of benign well not benign ways but ways you typically don't think of so you gave the example of starbucks doing this whole twitter campaign that had a social media aspect to it and it completely backfired and bit them in the butt
2: yeah totally i i think that you know that was one of the early examples that actually caught our attention this is a Starbucks marketing campaign, a global marketing campaign around the around the holiday season where they created this hashtag, hashtag spread the cheer, and they wanted people to post photos and warm and fuzzy holiday messages with that hashtag. And then they would post those messages on their on their social media as well as in some physical locations on in on large screens. And in some ways they created a, a very complex system, right? There were, all these potential participants who could who could use the, the the hashtag, they would be retweeting what they were saying, and then they were. There was another part of the system which was also connected: is that the, the Starbucks tweets with the hashtag would be these retweeted tweets, and individual tweets would be appearing in the physical locations. And
1: and it as- was an it was an ice skating rink, right? They showed up at a screen at an ice skating rink in in London.
2: Yeah, so you know, very prominent location. There's a great Starbucks store there. Lots of people are watching it and, and they start seeing these messages come up that are that are very positive in, initially and people are tweeting about their Favorite lattes and their gingerbread cookies and things like that. And then all of a sudden it turns out that some people uh, decide to, to, to essentially hijack the, the campaign and start posting negative messages about Starbucks critical messages about their labor practices, about their kind of tax avoidance scandals that they were caught up in at the time, especially in the in the in the UK. And Starbucks, of course, thought about this possibility. They had a moderation filter put in place, but the moderation filter didn't function for for a little while. And talk about a tightly coupled system, right? Once the genie was out of the bottle, people when, once people realized that anything they say with that hashtag will be shared both online and and on this in these physical locations, then it was it was impossible to put the put the genie back into the bottle. And 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 again, even after they they fixed the moderation filter, it was just it was just too late. It was by that point uh, the the hashtag was trending with all these negative messages. Then traditional media started to pay attention to this funny thing happening on social media. So there was another layer to that. Social media is connected to traditional media, which then fed back into people tweeting uh, and Facebook sharing more and more about this. So very quickly essentially uh, a small oversight and, and a little glitch in the system that, that only lasted for a relatively short period of time turning into this this big, embarrassing PR fiasco that you couldn't just undo, that 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 was just spiraling, spiraling out of control.
0: All right. So the complexity was the social network. People act in unexpected ways. You can't predict that. And the tight coupling was, it was happening in real time. There's nothing you can do about it, really. Well, you also give examples of how technology has increased complexity and tight coupling in our economy. And you give examples of these flash crashes that happened in the stock market where you know, basically, there'll be like this giant crash of billions and billions of dollars, and then you know, a second later, a minute later, it goes back to normal.
1: Yeah, it's totally, it's totally fascinating, and I think what's fascinating about it is there are all these different. I mean, it's very, very similar to social media in a way. There are all these different participants looking to see what everybody else is doing and kind of using the output of other people as as the input to their own models and their own ways of behaviors, and so. You sometimes get these these kind of critical events where the you know the whole system starts moving in lockstep together and and moves down very quickly and then kind of bounces back. And well, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about it is that regulators and and policymakers, they sort of their mental model, generally speaking, of of the stock market is it's kind of like it used to be just faster. In other words, like, you know, it used to be that you had a bunch of guys on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange sort of shouting at each other. And, and that's how trading happened. And the sort of basic mental model, and it's changing a little bit, but the basic mental model of, of regulators has been like, well, that's still what's happening except computers are doing the kind of interaction and, and therefore everything is faster. But but really the truth is that it's a totally different system. It's The, the character of, of finance has totally changed. You also saw that in the in the financial crisis in 07-08, the way that the the decisions that one bank or institution made because of all the interlinkages in finance the way that those decisions really cascaded throughout the system so if if one participant you know started looking shaky then the next question was well who who has exposure to these people and and kind of how is that going to propagate through through the system you know so that was the big the big worry with aig that it wasn't so much the the failure of aig that was critical that was hugely important it was all of the people that had depended on aig to kind of not only in the sort of insurance as we think about it traditionally, but all the financial institutions that had made these big trades with AIG, it did totally fascinating stuff.
0: And it sounds like things are just going to get more complex as, you know, the the whole thing people are talking about now is the introduction of 5G, which would allow us to connect cars, health devices, connect homes with like smart things, like things are going to just get more and more complex.
1: Yeah, and I think that kind of gets to gets to the fundamental the I think the fundamental message of the book, which which for us from our perspective is that this complexity, we, we can't turn back the clock, right? I mean, I I, I I do tend to be skeptical of the cost and benefits of of some of these trade-offs, like my car being, you know, internet connected. But the truth is these systems in general, our world in general is going to get more complex and more tightly coupled. The thing that we do have some control over is the the things we can do to manage this, the things we can do to operate better in these systems. and And I think for for us, the key question was at the at the heart of the book that we try to answer is, you know, why can some organizations build teams that can thrive in these complex and uncertain environments while while others really, really struggle? And so, that's a lot of what the focus of the book is on. It's on this kind of the upside in a sense. How can you get the capabilities while being better able to, to manage the challenges?
0: And it sounds like everyone needs to start becoming an, you know, somewhat of an expert in this because systems that they interact with on a day-to-day basis are going to become more complex. And so they need to understand how they can get the upside with, while mitigating the downside. So let's talk about that. What Some of the, th- the things you all uncovered. So you start off talking about how trying to prevent melt- meltdowns can often backfire and actually increase the chances of meltdowns happening. And you use the uh, deep water horizon explosion as an example of that. So how can adding you know, safety measures actually backfire on you?
2: Yeah so we see this at deep water we see this in hospitals we see this in i think we have seen this in aviation we see this in in all kinds of systems it's a very understandable basic human tendency when that when we encounter a problem or something seems to be failing we want to add one more layer of, of safety. We add some more redundancy, we add a warning system, we add one more alarm system, more bells and whistles to the to the whole thing in the hopes that we'll be able to prevent these things in the future. Often, however, especially in the systems that are already so complex to begin with, what ends up happening is that those those alarms and those warning systems that we put in place themselves add to the complexity of the system in part because they become confusing and overwhelming at the moment. So at, you mentioned deep water. I mean, one of the things on the, one of the problems on the rig that day was that they had an extremely detailed protocol for how to deal with every single emergency that they could that they could envision but it was just it was it was so detailed it was it was so specific so rigid that it was just in the heat of the moment it was pretty much impossible for for people to figure out what is it that they what is it that they should be should be should be doing in hospitals a huge problem that we see all the time now is is that there are all sorts of alarms and warning systems built into hospitals to to warn doctors and nurses about things that might be happening with patients or with with medication doses or 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 what have you and at some point people just start to just start to tune out if if you hear an alarm or if you get an alarm on your computer screen where you're ordering medication every every minute or in some cases every every few seconds at some point you just you just have to you just have to ignore them, and then it becomes very hard to separate the signal from the noise. And and in our really kind of well intentioned efforts to 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 add warning systems, we we often end up just adding a ton of noise to these systems. And that was
0: part of the issue that was going on with the um, with the airplane crashes we've had recently. I think Air France there was issues where you know alarms are going off and they're being ignored, or even on the, the least recent Boeing ones. There was, you know, sort of false positives of what was going on, and the computer system overrode and caused the crash.
1: Yeah, so the, I mean, the the seven hundred and thirty seven Max crashes that we've tragically seen recently, I mean, are are exactly this problem. It is Boeing, you know, very well intentioned, very thoughtful engineers at Boeing added a safety system to their airplane, and you know that makes sense, right? To first order, when you when you just kind of think about it in isolation adding a safety system should make things safer but they didn't properly account for the complexity that that safety system introduced and so what we see is we see they're now dealing with the the tragic and unintended consequences of that
0: so what can organizations individuals do to cut through all that complexity as much as they can to see so they can figure out what they need to focus on that can really make a
2: difference in preventing meltdowns? One of the, the things that we find to be extremely important is, is to make an effort, and, and I think this applies to our individual lives as well as to, to running a big organization or a big system as well, is, is to make an effort to pick up on what we call weak signals of failure, on, on kind of near misses or, or, or just strange things that you you see in your data or your experience in your daily life as you are going around or running a system or trying to to manage a team, something that's unexplained, anomalies, and try to learn from that. This relates to complexity because, well, one of the hallmarks of, of, I think, a highly complex system is that you can't just sit down in your armchair and imagine all the the, the the crazy, unexpected ways in which it can fail. That's just not possible, almost by definition. What you can do, on the other hand, is you can... Before these little things all come together into one big error chain, often what you see is is a part of that error chain playing out, not all the way, but just a little part of it. So the system almost fails but doesn't fail or something strange starts to happen that could lead to something much worse if you catch it on time. You can learn from that. And, and, and but I think what we see time and time again is that we have this tendency to treat those incidents, these small weak signals of failure, as kind of confirmations that things are actually going pretty well, right? the, the system the system didn't fail. Maybe it got close to it, maybe it, it, it was just starting to fail, but but it eventually didn't fail. So so it's safe. So we, we have this temptation to conclude that. While what, what we argue is that you, you'll be in a much better position if you start to treat those incidents and those observations as data.
0: Yeah, I think it's an important point. The idea, don't focus on outcomes, right? Because everything can go right and be successful because of just dumb luck. Right. But there's that one time when that, those little anomalies that popped up can actually... I mean, that's the example, I guess, Columbia. The space shuttle Columbia is a perfect example of this, where the engineers knew that those, those tiles were coming off. And it happened a lot, and you know the shuttles were able to successfully land safely. So they figured, oh, it's just something that happens; it's par for the course. But then that one time in 2003, I mean, it ended up disintegrating the
1: shuttle. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, we we see this in our own lives too. I mean, I think my like there's there's sort of two examples I love. I think everybody who has a car has had the experience of the check engine light coming on, and the response being like. God, I hope that thing goes off, and then it goes off later, and you're like, "Okay, good. I don't have to worry about that anymore." And yet, there is something that that caused that light to to come on in the first place, and you're sort of kicking the can down the road a little bit. And not that that's in you know with your car, not that that's necessarily a a bad strategy. But the more complex the system gets, the kind of the 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 more I guess the more you're giving up by not attending to those kind of things. You know, one example that actually happened. To me, right before, right, right as we were working on the book, was, you know, I had a toilet in my house that started running slowly, and you know, I just kind of dealt with it for a while, like, oh yeah, that toilet's running slowly; it always does that, or, and then, you know, eventually it clogged and it and it and it overflowed, and you know, was quite literally a shit show. But that's because I didn't attend to that that kind of weak cue that, that there's something here I should pay attention to.
3: We're going to take a quick break for you, word from our sponsors. It's easy to think of the city when you think of the New York Jets. Glitz, glamour, Broadway Joe Namath. You
4: usually don't think of folks like Kelvin Beecham. But maybe you should. Currently the starting left tackle for the New York Jets, but originally from Mahea, Texas. M-E-X-I-A. Most people can't say it right, especially if they're from the North. He plays in the city,
3: but there's no mistaking. Kelvin's a country guy.
4: I love the slow pace that goes along with, with the country living. You know, there's nothing wrong with the city. You know, I enjoy going into the city. And at the same time, you know, you can put me on a four-wheeler and throw my phone in a, in a pond, and i would be just fine for the rest of the day.
3: Long before his city-dwelling days, he grew up in the country, and he learned to love the land. So even though he lives near cities now, he always seeks out things
4: that remind him of home. I actually get to go through cornfields every single day. Cornfields, goats, uh, some cattle. I still kind of get that country feel, even though it may not actually be, you know, the little small town of Mahia.
3: And he missed Mahaya so much, he took up an activity that his neck of the woods is well known for, farming. He loves spending time in the land, but he also finds something else enticing about farming that you might not expect.
4: You know, for me, it's the different level of creativity that I enjoy about farming. You know, it's one thing to, to draw on a piece of paper that, you know, I want to do this, I want to move this here, I want to I draw this here, I want to build this here. But to actually get on a tractor and like, it's fun. For me as a kid, I used to play with tractors all the time. Play with tractors, you know, you build dirt mounds, you dig up little holes and, you know, you just have this whole creative mind as a kid. And as you kind of grow older, you kind of get away from those types of things. And now I'm older and it's like, I still want to be a kid sometimes. So it's like, now I get to play with big toys. Like really big toys. I find creativity in a lot of farmers. I'd be surprised you go to some of the farms around the country and see the, the type of operations that they have. Like, you don't have these type of operations just by waking up and saying, oh, I want to do this today. No, you got to be creative, you got to be strategic, you got to be intentional. And that's what some of these farmers are doing.
3: But it's not just the creativity he admires about farming. It's the way farmers give back to their communities. Growing up, Coven and his family relied on assistance to make ends meet. One in six children grow up in food-insecure homes, and it's a problem Kelvin is working to fight against with the help of Undeniably Dairy and Feeding America.
4: You know, I was who, who Undeniably Dairy is talking about right now. Um, I was one of those kids that, that you know, were, were thinking about, um, you know, how ends were going to be met and, and, and what food was going to look like during the summers. So go to givinggallon.com, and then also think about the people that are in your surrounding circles that you feel could be impacted by Give a Gallon.
3: Just go to giveagallon.com and donate to food banks in your area today. And now back to the show. And how do you overcome that
0: tendency? Is there anything from social psychology or psychology that we can that we've you know gotten insights
1: on how to overcome that tendency to ignore small anomalies? Yeah, I think there's. I mean, there's one thing is you can just write them down, right? Write them down and share them with other people. And, and the other thing is you you've got to be part of an organization. Sort of thinking about it more from a like a team culture perspective and a and a sort of work perspective, you've got to be part of an organization that's willing to talk about mistakes and errors because. So many of of the way that these things happen comes out of mistakes and and comes out of you know people who miss something maybe as a as a function of the system. But to learn from it, you you've got to be willing to talk about it. So we're we've been working with a doing consulting work with a company, and one of the things we're helping them do is we're helping them sort of reimagine the way. This is a a pretty big tech company, and we're helping them reimagine the way that they learn from bugs that they've introduced in their software. They have this they have this postmortem process that they've been running for a long time and they have a good culture around it and we're just helping them figure out how to get the push the learning out further in the organization and, and kind of help them make sure it it is reinforcing a culture of blamelessness rather than being, you know, blaming the the person who introduced a bug or brought down the system or or whatever it is. So, I think pushing the learning out as much as possible and and reinforcing the culture of Everybody's expected to make mistakes. The important thing is you raise your hand and say I messed this up and then everybody can learn from it. Well,
0: I think you all highlight organizations where people get rewarded for reporting their own mistakes. Like they'll there'll be some sort of reward ceremony. Mm-hmm. Like hey, this guy messed up and but he figured out something we can do with that that mess up.
1: Yeah, the 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 company Etsy, who, you know, many of us know is this kind of great place that sells these handmade crafts is a really super sophisticated engineering organization behind it you know they have 300 400 engineers that that are really doing cutting edge software stuff and every year they give out a th- what they call the three Arms sweater award which is an award for the engineer who broke their website in the most creative and unexpected way possible so that's really an example of a culture kind of celebrating these kinds of these kinds of problems th- through through the learning and and saying yes we know mistakes are going to happen the important thing is we learn from them.
0: Okay, so you can pay attention to anomalies even if they're small. So if the check engine light comes on and goes off, take it to the dealership because there might be something bigger looming there. Create a culture where anomalies are you know. People bring those up willingly; they don't try to hide it. But then another part of you know preventing meltdowns is giving getting an idea of how likely it's going they're going to occur. Because a lot of these meltdowns that happen, people are just like, "I just we didn't see it coming. Like it's I don't we we had no idea this could happen. Is it even possible when as systems get get more and more complex to even predict? Like are these all gonna be black swan events, as Nassim Taleb says, or are there techniques we can use where we can hone in a bit and get an idea of how likely some meltdown is going to occur?
2: Yeah, so I think that's a great question. I think again, prediction from your armchair is not is not possible, but there are two things you can do. One is, as we just discussed, you can start paying attention to these to these signals that are emerging and treat those as data rather than as confirmations that things are are going just fine. And the other thing you can do is that there are now a bunch of techniques that that social psychologists and others have developed to to really try to get at the the, the the sort of nagging concerns that people are not necessarily bringing up, not necessarily articulating, maybe not even to themselves and certainly not to their team and to their manager. And we talk about a bunch of these in the book, but I'll just highlight one that, that we, we both really like. It's, it's the premortem technique, which mm-hmm. essentially entails imagining that your project or your team or, or whatever high stakes thing uh, you might be working on has failed miserably in, in six months from now or a year from now. And then getting people in your team to, to sit down and kind of write a short little history of that failure. And and when you do this, you you have to use a lot of past tense. You have to tell people hey, this failure has happened, our team has failed, our project was a miserable failure without giving them any specifics and then then turning things around and asking them to to give you their kind of best set of reasons for for why that might happen. And and there is some fascinating research behind this technique that shows that when you ask this question in this way, people come up with much more specific reasons for, for why something might actually fail they come up with a much broader set of reasons for why that that failure might come about and and it also helps a lot with the the social dynamics in a group often you know in an organization we are rewarded for coming up with solutions here now we are rewarding people at least in this at least by allowing them to be creative and and talk about these things for 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 articulating reasons why a project or a team or, 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 or a business unit might fail. And, and it really has this interesting cognitive and kind of social effect that really liberates people to, to talk about these issues. And it's been shown to be vastly superior to the normal way that we usually do this, which is just Purely brainstorming about risks, right? We, we do that all the time when we are running a project. We sit down and we think, okay, what could go wrong? What are the risks here? Let's think about that. It turns out that's not the right way to do it. And, and, and there, is a right way to, there is a right way to do it.
0: And as I was listening to this, I can see this being applied just on people's personal lives, right? Bringing it back. If you're planning a vacation with your family, you're sitting down with the missus and be like, all right, our vacation was a complete failure. Like why was it a complete failure? Right. Or totally. Or you're planning or you're like you're planning a class reunion, right? And it's where there's all these moving parts. It's
2: okay, my class reunion was a complete
0: bust. What happened?
2: Totally. Yeah. Or say you are sitting down with your family and thinking about a, a home renovation project. And you know it's gonna take about two months, and you say, Okay, now let's imagine it's three or four months from now, the project was a disaster. We never want to see that contractor ever again. We we really regret that we even started this whole thing. Now everybody talk write down you know what what went wrong. Again, use this this the past tense rather than asking what could go wrong. And 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 yeah, and I think it would really help people. People, Chris and I actually collected some data on this, and it really seems like people volunteer information that that sort of. That sort of butters them, but they never really had an opportunity to to bring up. And I think using that to collect data about risks is one of the one of the most powerful predictive tools we have.
1: And and to your question, Brett, I think you know the vacation one is a great example, right? It, it's not like the output of this. It's not like we're not going to take the vacation, right? But maybe we are going to figure out, like, oh, like. You know, in this part of the trip, there's no activities for the kids to do. Like maybe we need to figure out, like, is there a playground near where we're staying, right? Or, you know, is, is there is there something fun for them to do? or maybe we need to, you know, whatever, make sure the iPad is charged or or bring them, you know, bring a little like you know, nature kit so that they can go exploring with a magnifying glass or you know, whatever it is. It's like, the key is that this raises, this lets us raise issues, which we can then resolve in a creative way. It's not like, well, we're not going to take the vacation or we're not going to have the class reunion.
0: So, one of my favorite chapters in your book about how to mitigate the downsides of complexity and tightly coupled systems is by increasing diversity on your team your group and there's a diversity of viewpoints studies have shown that outcomes are better, like more, more creative solutions are developed, etc. And you know, I've, I've read that literature. I, I've had people on the podcast that, you know, they talk about the same thing and I asked them like, "What? why, what's going on? Like why? And the answer they give is like, well, we don't, it just does. Right. And like, I never understood it because like I always thought, well, you can have a diverse group of people, but they all give equally bad ideas. But I think your guys' explanation of why diversity works is interesting because it makes counterintuitive sense. And it's that diversity breeds distrust. And that actually helps us get better answers. Can you talk about that a bit?
2: Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is coming from some pretty recent research done in really in the past sort of three to five years where where psychologists are are increasingly discovering this effect that in in diverse groups people tend to be a a bit more skeptical they tend to feel a little less comfortable and if you compare those groups to homogeneous groups you know there seems to be this effect that when you're surrounded by people who who look like you you also tend to assume that they think like you and and as a result you you don't work as hard to, to question them. You don't work as hard to get them to explain their assumptions. And, and that just doesn't happen as much in, in, in diverse teams. In diverse teams, people don't tend to give each other the benefit of the doubt, at least in a cognitive sense, quite as much. So you mentioned distrust, and I think that's sort of a, an interesting way way to think about it. But I would say that it's it's distrust in a, in a pretty specific sense. It's not distrust in the in a kind of interpersonal sense. It's not that I, I don't trust you or that I don't trust Chris to do the right thing or to, to wanna have the same good outcomes that I want to have. It's more that I I don't I might be skeptical, more skeptical about your interpretation of the world, or at least I have some skepticism as to whether you buy my interpretation of the of the world. And this of course creates some friction and 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 friction is is can be healthy in in a, in a complex system. Of course, you don't want people to disagree too easily. You want people to to unearth assumptions and, and question each other. While in a you know, if you're running a very simple kind of operation and it's very execution oriented, there's not a lot of strategic thinking. There's not a lot of a lot of these black swan type of events you need to worry about. You know, diversity is is probably not particularly important, at least from a, a kind of effectiveness point of view. But if you are running something that's complex and and you really can't afford people to fall in line too easily, and you really want some level of dissent, what the data show across types of diversity, whether it's race or gender or even something like professional background, is 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 that is that diversity tends to. Tends to make a very positive difference in in, in those systems if it's managed well.
0: And uh, yeah, like like you said, the diversity doesn't have to be based on race or gender or whatever. It can be profession. You give the example of the Challenger explosion. All the engineers thought it, you know, nothing was a problem with the O-rings, right, which would end up causing the the failure. But there was some guy, some accountant, basically, who saw that there was an issue, and he got ignored because all the engineers are like well you're not an engineer like us you're not wearing the white shirt and tie and got the slide ruler go back to wherever you are and ended up being the o-ring causing the problem
2: yeah and we, we see the same kind of effect in, in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of areas one one um, Set of results we write about in the book is is about small banks in the U.S. community banks, right? Your credit unions, your your local banks, and we look at their boards, and and it turns out that the, when these banks have boards that have a good amount of professional diversity, so not just bankers, but also lawyers and journalists and doctors and sort of people from the community, there tends to be a lot more skepticism and disagreement on those boards, uh, which. Doesn't seem to make a big difference if these banks are doing very simple, straightforward things, just running a couple of branches in, in in a small town. But once they start to do more interesting, bigger, more complex things like expanding out of a out of a county or getting engaged in, in sort of more complex, high-stakes lending markets, then all of a sudden having that kind of disagreement and, and skepticism and diversity on the board becomes really, really helpful and And it turns out that it 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 measurably increases the the chances that those banks will will survive and even even doing something like the financial crisis.
0: And how do you manage that skepticism so that it's
2: productive and not you know, doesn't get in the way of getting things done? so so I think, to To a large extent it's it's a leadership challenge, sort of how you 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 run that group and and I think instilling a culture where people understand that there's a distinction between interpersonal conflict and and task conflict. so conflict about you know i I, I don't like you know the way Chris dresses and drinks his coffee and and all that kind of stuff. I drink my coffee just fine, thank you. I think your coffee is just fine versus task conflict, which is you know i i disagree with chris's interpretation of this particular event and and sort of treating the first thing the the interpersonal stuff as something that we need to hammer out and get rid of but making sure that our team and, and organizational culture treats the, the second thing, the task conflict, as something that we need to celebrate, right? It's great that we disagree because it's data, because we have these different perspectives and these different little data points about this particular thing, and that forces us to state our assumptions. And, and I think as a, as a manager or a director on one of these boards, or or you know, even even at home, if you're kind of thinking about this in, in a family context, managing disagreement in, in this way uh, is, is really critical and, and making sure that the, the, the task conflict, this sort of cognitive conflict that we do want to have doesn't turn into interpersonal conflict, but rather gets treated basically as data about this complex system that we have to navigate is, 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 really, the, is really the way to go
1: and then i'll i'll add something to that cuz when we work with leaders you know when especially when we work with senior leaders i mean that there's always a tension between right i mean senior leaders got to be senior leaders because they were they were you know good at making decisions good at their their judgment but there becomes a time particularly in a complex system where they have to start to delegate more and otherwise they will be overwhelmed by the amount of data that they have to process they will be overwhelmed by the and they will not be able to predict the interactions between different parts of the system, right? That That's only something that somebody who is working lower down, who is, if they're a programmer, programming every day, if they're an engineer, you know, working directly on the engineering problem, only they will be able to, to kind of make the right call. And so I actually think this ties into this, this decision-making and, and diversity question in a, in a real tangible way. One of the things we help leaders do is sort of set up the kind of output parameters of like, okay, what risks are they comfortable with their teams taking? What mistakes are they comfortable with people making? And then any decision that seems like it's kind of in, you know, in that ring fence really should be pushed down as low in the chain as possible. And anything that Any disagreement that seems that can't be resolved at a lower level should get escalated. But one of the things that does is that means that you don't have a leader who is kind of stopping the decision making process when people actually have enough information. And even when people make a decision and make a mistake, you have a process in place that says, okay, well, you know, this isn't the call I would have made. Here's why my thinking is different in this case. But because you've kind of sort of put a, a ring around, the types of risks that you're willing to let people take, you can end up with having really effective decision-making that, that doesn't put the firm or doesn't put you know different parts of reputation or your reputation or a big project at risk. And so I think that part of the question about decision-making, diversity just adds data, but many organizations struggle with how to make better decisions faster. And, and that comes from thinking about things a little more systematically from the get-go. I'm bringing this back to how people can apply this to their just home life,
0: their personal life. I imagine if you're trying to make a decision that where there's you know a lot of complexity involved, like those really tough decisions that people encounter every now and then with their life, talk to a whole variety of people, like have like a sounding board you can go to, yeah, not just your friends who are going to say, oh, you know, you're great, whatever you want to do is fine like actually look for those people who are going to tell you what's what and give you contradictory feedback and
1: have them explain their thinking. Yeah, totally. And I, and I think one of the one of the ways to do it too is to to just structure your question to your your friends very carefully. You know, you can ask them in the form of a premortem. You can say, "Hey, I want your help thinking through whether or not I should take this new job, whether or not, you know, I should move with my family to St. Louis or or whatever it is." Like like let's imagine we do this and and it turns out you know 6 months from now I'm calling you and telling you this is a total disaster you know what are the things that led to that so you can really use that technique to to create skeptics in your in your community and create skeptics in your network and as you said go to outsiders go to people who are going to say no this isn't the right decision and and here's why that can be really helpful uh, another top and sort of bias that we have that can cause us problems with complex,
0: tightly coupled systems, this idea of get their itis which is what you guys call it. What is that, and how does that contribute to disasters?
1: Yeah, get their itis We're not the ones who came up with that name. It's, it's actually like I feel like an official term in the in the aviation accident literature. It is basically this phenomenon that happens to really, you know, highly trained pilots, as they get closer and closer to their destination, they get more and more fixated on, you know, landing at the intended point of landing. And so they they start to take information. That sort of suggests that maybe there's a problem or maybe they should do something else and they and they start to discard it. And and this is kind of this natural human tendency that we all have. You know, we we look for data that that confirms our opinion rather than what we should be doing, which is look for data that that sort of disagrees with our opinion. But the, the getheritis, you know, it happens when flight crews are, you know, flying to their destination airport, but it also happens to all of us, you know, when we're working on a project, right? So the the kind of once a project is started, boy, is it hard to take a step back and say, like, actually, things have changed. This is no longer, you know, the right decision. This is no longer the right way to run our marketing campaign, or this is no longer, you know, the right piece of technology to include in this car, or this is no longer, you know, we, we don't even think there's a market for this craft beer that we're brewing anymore. People tend to as the kind of pressure gets ramped up, people tend to just want to do more of the same thing and and want to push forward more and more and more. And sometimes that works out but and that kind of helps make it even more dangerous but but when it doesn't work out, it can really blow up in our faces in, in really big ways from you know from actual, Airplane crashes to things like you can look at a Target's expansion into Canada, which kind of ended in you know uh, thousands of people being laid off and and I think seven billion dollars being written down from from Target. So that that get thereitis is really a part of pushing forward when we should be able to take a step back.
0: It sounds like there's some sunk cost fallacy going on there. Boom. A lot of yeah. ego ego protection. You know, people are like, well, I started this thing. I'm a smart person, so when I decided it must have been a good idea, if yeah. I say I'm not doing it anymore, it means I'm a dummy. Now that's going to look bad. Someone's going to keep going.
1: Yeah, totally. And and I think that there's this. You know, th- there's so much there, and there's a great story from I think it's in one of Andy Grove's books w- when he was at Intel, and they were sort of. Uh, in the process of looking at the the way that the market had really shifted around them and he and the the CEO at the time i think sort of asked themselves this question you know what decision would we make if we had just been fired and then they brought you and i back in from the outside and we were looking at this with fresh eyes what what decision we would make and so being able to kind of shock yourself out of that 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 sunk cost fallacy being able to shock yourself out of that status quo bias is 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 huge and you mentioned ego and i think one of the things that the research shows and we see over and over again in in our work is that the the most effective organizations are the ones that start with a theory that they want to test and then test that theory and use that to kind of build what they're going to do rather than starting with a theory that is kind of an implicit theory, but that turns into this is what we're going to do without really having any great data on on how much that works.
0: Well, Andres, Chris, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work?
1: So you can find us at a bunch of places. We have a book website, rethinkrisk.net, which also has a short two, three-minute quiz that you can take to Find out if you are heading for a meltdown in one of your your projects or your your situations. Twitter for our book is at Rethink Risk. I'm on Twitter at Chris Clearfield. And then my personal website is chrisclearfield.com. Well,
0: guys, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Brad,
1: thanks. this has been awesome. Thank you.
0: My guests today were Chris Clearfield and Andras Tilchuk. They're the author of the book, Meltdown, Why Our Systems Fail and What We Can Do About It. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find out more information about their work at rethinkrisk.net. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash meltdown, where you find links to resources, where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives. There's over 500 episodes there, as well as thousands of articles rewritten over the years about personal finances, health and fitness, managing complex systems, mental models, you name it, we've got it. And if you'd like to hear ad-free new episodes of the Art of Manliness, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. For a free month of Stitcher Premium, sign up at stitcherpremium.com and use promo code manliness. After you sign up, you can download the Stitcher app for iOS and Android and start enjoying ad-free Art of Manliness episodes. Again, stitcherpremium.com promo code manliness. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate it if you take one minute to give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever else you use to listen to your podcast. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think would get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay reminding you not only listen to the A1 Podcast, but put what you've heard into action.